I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest shows by award-winning playwrights. We're back with our interview with Marcia Johnson, the writer behind the hit play Serving Elizabeth. Laura, I'm so glad that we were able to record and share this play that has been just such a huge success at theatres like the Thousand Island Playhouse and the Stratford Festival. It's obviously a very timely show, given the passing of Queen Elizabeth and the coronation of now King Charles, which has sparked further debate and discussion about the institution of the monarchy. For anyone who hasn't had the chance to listen to the play yet, we hope you'll check it out. The production was inspired when Marcia, like many of us, devoured the Netflix series The Crown. That show dramatizes the British family going back in time to just before the death of King George when Princess Elizabeth marries Prince Philip. There was one episode that bothered Marcia. It was set during Princess Elizabeth's historic visit to Kenya in the 1950s. Marcia noticed that in that chapter of the series, the Kenyan perspective was ignored entirely. She decided to write Serving Elizabeth as her way of dealing with some of the frustration of the show and the lack of representation of the Kenyan people. Marcia Johnson is an actor, playwright, and dramaturge, born in Jamaica and has lived in Toronto ever since she was six. Her plays include Binti's Journey, an adaptation of the TYA novel The Heaven Shop by Deborah Ellis. Courting Joanna, based on Alice Munro's Hate Ship, Friendship, Courtship, Love Ship, Marriage, and Late, produced by Ossidian Theatre. I had a chance to talk to Marcia about her own personal relationship with the monarchy, the inspiration for the show, and how conversations around colonialism have changed over the years. This is my interview with Marcia Johnson. Marcia, this is just such a uh, timely piece uh, with, of course, the, the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth and the coronation of the king. And, you know, everybody seems to have a very strong opinion about the monarchy right now. And I'm just curious, what is your personal relationship with the monarchy, both past and present? I feel like it's anyone else's. This is the person that's on the money and the stamps and has been around since long before I was born. So it's like it's a cultural shift. I do have some sort of connection with the monarchy now, which is shocking to me. But people were contacting me out of the blue the day that she died. (laughs) 
people who were connected to the show, people who'd been in the audience. Like a man stopped me on the street. He'd seen the Thousand Islands production and he chased after me to tell me, and this was the day that she died. He said that when he found out about it, I was the first person he thought of. <laughs> so that's, I, wa- I walked out around in a daze for that. I, I never would have dreamed that one day someone would say that to me. But the more personal connection I had uh, with the monarchy was just being a little girl and loving fairy tales. And when I found out there were actual real life queens and princesses, and my goodness, I really did follow them for a, a long time. In that part of serving Elizabeth, that is Tia represents that part mm-hmm. of me. Only she had her awakening much younger than I did. Yeah. Well, what was your awakening? How did you go from a young girl who followed the fairy tales of kings and queens mm-hmm. to seeing it from a much broader perspective? Well, it's just being an an adult and there are things that I didn't learn in school and didn't make connections to in school. But when you find out that white supremacy and slavery play such a huge role in the British monarchy's current wealth and status, I mean, there's no turning back. I can't pretend that I don't know that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't hold any one living person responsible for the trials that people in colonized countries and enslaved countries had to go through. It would have been nice if Queen Elizabeth had made a statement, an apology for slavery. But like I said, I can't pin it all on her. Hmm. And again, here's like, here's another twist in it. Um, I feel that she represented another era. She brought us into the modern age And it would have made sense for the monarchy to end with her or for some symbolic thing to happen, like maybe they no longer draw a salary. I don't know. Um, But my goal in serving Elizabeth wasn't to beat them up. My goal was to say, there's a part of this story, there's a part of colonialism that isn't talked about enough. And if I show respect to all sides to say these are human beings who are affected by this system, some really negatively and some really positively. If I, just to tell that kind of story and a few people look at things a different way, that makes me happy. Hmm. So what was the inspiration for the piece? It was watching The Crown on Netflix. I had been avoiding it for a long time. This was like the fall of 2016. But the trailers looked so good. And some of my favorite English actors <laughs> were in it. And at the time, it was the biggest budget series Netflix had ever put up. So I thought I'd watch it. And the first episode was wonderful. And it seemed that there was a new way of telling the story. They you know, they weren't presenting Elizabeth as, you know, a saint. It was this young woman who was getting thrown into this thing, this thing that she's been prepared for since like puberty when her um, uncle abdicated and she found out that after her father, she would be the next one. And I love that they showed like how daunting that would be. And it really portrayed her as a human. So I thought, well, maybe I can watch this. If if they're going to be portraying the royals as people, this would be interesting. But then in the second episode, 
that all changed. It started off well because it was the big trip that Elizabeth and Philip took to Kenya when she became queen. And in other adaptations or other tellings of this, that doesn't get really represented. It gets represented that, oh my goodness, send for Elizabeth, you know, she has to come back. But they were actually filming in Africa. There's no way that that was a studio or anything. And I thought, well, good. They are actually, you know, telling it from a wider lens. But by the end of the episode, I was just furious because there was only one emotion that the Black people in Africa paid towards her. And that was adoration, adoration and awe. And meanwhile, the Mau Mau uprising was stirring. It happened about eight months later. There were lots of people who were not happy that she was there, who were very anti-colonial, anti-monarchy, and it wasn't shown. And I thought that that was a missed opportunity. So I wrote a play giving those Black people voice and also having a storyline set in our time and just to show how Artists have some kind of responsibility to tell stories because people end up believing it. People take novels and TV shows and movies as fact. So we have to take care. Attention must be paid, as Linda Lohman says. (laughs) (laughs) So you feel almost as though you're creating a record or correcting the record. Um, I don't know if correcting, but broadening the scope. You know, like yeah. there, there is more to this story than you are telling. And in fact, it makes the story more interesting. Why not have some more conflict? Mm. Why not have other perspectives and points of view? You went to an entire continent filled with Black people. And the most that they had to say was, good day, madam. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so you saw something that upset you. And most people, they just shoot off an angry tweet. But... You decided to write a play about it. Why that medium? Why write a play? I I get a chance to really ruminate on something and go through research material and edit and rewrite and listen to people's feedback and hear, you know, actors read this thing that it's only my voice I've been hearing. It really helps me. Because when I started at the beginning, I had no idea how the play was going to end. Mm -hmm. It helps me to figure out when I'm reading all these things and I'm learning about this element of Elizabeth's life or this historical thing that happened in Kenya and bring them all together. And it's just really satisfying to be that subversive, to give the perspective that I want to share while entertaining people. Yeah. So it's much more satisfying than trying to talk sense to a Twitter troll. (laughs) What struck me with serving Elizabeth is just how nuanced the characters are, but also how nuanced the politics is within it. It seems like a really honest and fleshed out conversation about colonialism. And I think even just like one example is all of the characters are sympathetic in some way. And I'm just wondering, where did this approach come from? Well, thank you for saying that. And that actually reminds me of when I used to do stand-up comedy. I You were to, a stand-up comedian. I was, yes. <laughs> and what I took pride in is you could sit in the front row during my set and I would never pick on you. I'd never say something about your date or your weight or your hair or anything. 
if there's anyone I would make fun of, it's myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't interested in beating anyone up in this play. I just wanted to show the humanity of everyone. So at this point, Princess Elizabeth is 25 years old. She's got two young children that she's going to leave behind. She's got a father who is quite ill, but she's got an incredible sense of duty. When her uncle abdicated the throne, this pressure started on her as a young teenage girl. Mm. So if I were to say, all right, Princess Elizabeth, charge of the monarchy, subjugating people, cares about (laughs) no one else. Like how that's not interesting and it's not true. And if I were to have the black woman who butts heads with her be totally angry all the time and knows exactly the right thing to say and is just this perfect wounded person, that's not interesting either. Mm -hmm. But what about these two women who live these really interesting lives who are placed together in this interesting moment in time? Yeah. That's more interesting. Yeah. You know, knowing about the content of Serving Elizabeth, it's just so timely right now because, of course, you know, there's been the passing of the crown. And I was thinking about how actually you and I were together soon after Queen Elizabeth died. Um, I think it was right at the very end of the 10-day period of mourning. And you and I were at the Doras sitting side by side and went out for drinks after. And it was such a, a lovely night. But I remember sitting beside you, there were just two extreme reactions around that period of time. There was this incredible deference and celebration, but also, and I remember at the Doras at one point, somebody mentioned the Queen and and there was some booing and heckling. Mm -hmm. And they were just such extreme reactions. And knowing your approach with serving Elizabeth, I was really curious, like, what was going through your head? that night and around that time. I don't know if I would ever boo or cheer the passing of someone. Yeah. You know, I understand, though, if other people feel that maybe it's the same way that when I find out how the role that white supremacy has played in building up the monarchy, that I could therefore never consider myself a fan of it. Maybe someone whose, you know, parents and grandparents are in residential schools they feel the need to speak up and to boo. And I I get that. I totally get that. Yeah. But I I guess I'm still figuring it out. I have to be honest with you, Chris. When the play was going to have its premiere, I was holding out all kinds of, like, please, 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 Elizabeth Windsor Mountbatten, do not die before my first (laughs) production. Please, I do not want, I want it to be, Uh, judged on its own. I didn't want it to be mired in with all these. And I just feel very, very lucky that it had five productions and already had its own like life before her. (laughs) Well, talking about the show, of course, I'd love to talk about all the different characters, but one character that has really stuck with me is Montague. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to just talk to you a bit about him because there's a lot going on. He's a complex character. Here he is, Kenyan, but Cambridge educated, talking Mm -hmm. about wanting to go to the UK, you know, and he's also serving 
a colonial diplomat. Like there's yeah. a lot going on there. And he's yeah. the one also who's challenged too. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about him? I'm so glad that you're curious about him because he's not one of the characters I could spend a lot of time on. Like it's not his story. Yeah. But I like going for things that aren't obvious. And there were many wealthy Africans. And when I looked in the different rosters of the English colleges at the time, and there were several Black students with African names. And, you know, I just thought, well, does anyone ever present a Black person as being rich mm-hmm. or ambitious or coming from a wealthy family? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of them did settle in England in their lovely houses. So I'm just going to leave you a taste of that. So here are the characters who are making things happen, whose things are happening to them. But, you know, this other character here who plays an important role several times throughout the play. Did you notice that he has a college degree and works for the government and he's just this ambitious guy? And it is confusing because I think he's one of those people. And so um, the Envoy character, Elizabeth's Envoy, um, Talbot, they're the ones that are saying the imperial imperialism is changing. Mm-hmm. The Commonwealth of the future is what's happening. Yeah. We know that we have caused problems, but things are going to be better now as long as you stay with us, as long as you stay in the Commonwealth family. So I think he's a true believer. But he wants to move to the UK after. Yeah, why not? Well, that yeah, because it's still part of the climbing the ladder. Yeah. And he probably can only go so far if he stays in Kenya. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Well, then how about Brexit? Because the Brexit vote, you place it during that time. And of course, part of that is just the logistics of the timing of building the TV show and when it was being produced. But I'm sure there's more there. What's the symbolism behind that? Well, what was lucky was when I was writing, I was looking to see what else was going on in the world at the time. So I saw that the show was filming in 2015 and that the Brexit vote happened in 2016. And there were just all these clues like they were being placed because the show was going back and forth in time. So I'd be dropping little clues like, oh, Kate's, Kate's pregnant. I hope pregnancy goes better than the first one. You know, so we know, OK, so she's just had the first two kids so far and just little things to set it. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like a place marker for a while. But then Brexit itself seemed like a similar argument to, oh, we're moving from imperialism to Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. So now we're moving from European Union to Brexit to go back in time to whatever people were terrified that immigrants were going to ruin. I don't know. (laughs) It just seemed like a good, I think this wasn't deliberate, but it went to show that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, that's it. It's an interesting connection. Uh, I'm Chris Tolley here with Marcia Johnson, and we're talking about her play, Serving Elizabeth. We'll be right back, right after this. We're back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. 
with playwright Marcia Johnson talking about Serving Elizabeth. And, you know, I'd love to talk about that name. Serving Elizabeth, because everyone is serving somebody else. The TV intern is serving the producer. The Kenyan driver is serving the colonial diplomat. Can you just talk about that as a theme throughout the show? Oh, well, actually, it's also a double entendre. It's serving Elizabeth as well. The kind of Elizabeth that serves. Yeah, that's true. Serving Elizabeth and serving Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, the original title was Heavy as the Head, which is not a direct taking from one of the Shakespeare plays. Uneasy is the head that wears a crown, but most people Mm -hmm. say heavy is the head that wears a crown. So after a time at uh, Western Canada Theatre, where they just took a poll of their office staff and they said, Mm -hmm. what does that title mean to you? Do you know this expression? Do you know this Mm -hmm. saying? And most of them didn't. And if they had to guess, they thought it had something to do with a sexual act. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe ticket sales. You never know. I know, I know. (laughs) Well, actually, that's something that I noticed. There are a lot of Shakespearean references, even with the names Talbot, Montague. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why did you seep it in that world? Interesting. I guess it's just in me. Like I, you know, started watching and studying Shakespeare in public school. So it probably is just part of all of us. There are people who don't know they're quoting Shakespeare when they say certain things. Yeah. But Montague wasn't originally his first name. I won't say the name of the person originally, but I just picked this name that I thought was neat and interesting mm-hmm. and then decided to do a Google word search. And it turned out he was the biggest, like sexist, right-wing running-for-office guy in Kenya. Oh, wow. And I have a friend in Kenya, and I said, I have a character who, this is their name. And she said, if you named a character after him, I wouldn't go see that play. I said, okay, Montague, like Romeo, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Done. So it's just luck. Sometimes I'll just go scour my Facebook page and like, oh, that's a good one. In fact, Mercy is uh, named after a Facebook friend. And I thought it suited her Mm. character because she has to show mercy at some point in the play. Well, that's the pivotal point when she does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all of us, like when we're, we don't know what we do. If you're in that much agony and there's that person, I mean, she is the symbol Mm -hmm. of the horrible things that have happened in her life. Yeah. And she loses her humanity just for a moment. Yeah. But she sees her. As a woman who's just lost a strong man in her life, doesn't know it yet. Yeah. But she feels for her. She shows mercy. Yeah. As a woman (laughs) and also as a playwright of color, I'm sure you sometimes, I'm guessing, feel maybe a little alone (laughs) out in the field. But of course you're not. There there are so many other trailblazers in this field. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about what influences you as a writer? Well, one of my big influences as a writer, because I'm an actor too, still I'm an actor and only started writing because I wanted to have juicier roles, meaningful roles. I never intended Mm -hmm. to keep writing. I just thought once people see, look, I can carry a lead role. Look, a character doesn't have to be specifically culturally Black to Mm -hmm. be thought of for the play's you know, that you're um, programming. 
And I just thought once they'd see that and they'd say, oh, yes, and then I'd never have to write again. But that's when I discovered that people were saying, there aren't enough of you. You have to keep writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was just one story. I don't know if I have another one. And I reached out to Janet Sears Ah. and she agreed to meet with me because she had written her show Africa Solo for the exact same reason that I had written my first play was I just wanted to be the lead person in the play and to carry the story and to go through things. And she agreed to meet with me and she gave me wonderful advice. And one of the things was, if you're afraid that you won't finish your play, book the theater, hire the actors, (laughs) you know, that'll get, that'll get things going on. So I was still pretty new as a playwright and I thought, well, I don't know if I have that kind of money, but I booked my living room and my barbecue Mm. and I booked some good friends to meet and read in my living room. And and then we just chatted around the barbecue afterwards. And yeah, that script was ready a week early. (laughs) Yeah, because I felt I couldn't let them down. It was it was it was great. It was terrific advice. Another huge influence is Lynn Nottage. Okay. I went to see Ruined at Manhattan Theatre Club in 2009. And whew, it was humbling because the play was set in Congo. Okay. And most of the cast were women. And I was nervous about going to see it because I'm already on those women's side. And, you know, yeah. rape is a, a tool of war there. And I just thought, I'm already on your side. Please don't beat me up. So I was really nervous about that. And she showed me the importance of taking care of your audience. She helped us understand what these women normal was. Because if she hadn't taken the time to have us Root for Mama Nadi, the woman who runs the brothel. If we had known right away that it was a brothel, we might have judged her. Yeah. But we, by the end of the the first scene, we we have no reason to judge that woman. Yeah. We have no reason. We're on her side. We hope she does well. And I thought, thank you. Thank you very much. And she did this with a comedic scene between her and a traveling salesman who was always trying to rip her off. And we're like, yes, you tell him, you tell him. And then when we see the things that he had shown her on his truck, he said, you can have all three for two if you don't want all of them. When I come back, I'll take one. And we see that the three things he's talking about are women. Mm. And like, am I not going to like her anymore? And then as the play goes on, we see these women have so few options. They've already been brutalized. If they're with mom and Nadi, They will get paid. Their health will be taken care of. They'll be safe. And that is their normal. And they're some of the lucky ones. Mm -hmm. So I learned about respecting your audience, telling the story without brutalizing people. Because there'd be moments where something would be really hard to take in. And then the subplot of the love story would come in. Or there'd be a joke about this or whatever while still paying respect to the story. Well, what's the secret of writing a piece that's 
in its sense, a very political piece, but also very entertaining. How do you balance that? You'll notice not a lot of my recent plays have direct address, where people speak directly to the audience. I like dropping clues. I like having things come out in dialogue and action. It's harder to do. Mm -hmm. I can lay it all out there and say, hey, audience, this is what's going on. Yeah. This is how I feel. But it's like putting together a puzzle. So instead I'm saying, how can I make sure the audience understands that when she's doing this, she's lying? Yeah. Or how can I get the audience to understand that X or Y? So I'm, I'm the kind of audience member that likes to try to figure things out, you know, when yeah. something happens. And I'll think, she said that already. Why is she saying it again? Mm-hmm. And try to figure it out with the characters as I go along. So if I'm writing a play that has so-called real people in it, there has to be someone who represents the audience that doesn't know everything. I'm just curious how, through your eyes, how have things changed or maybe not changed at all for you as a writer of color over Mm -hmm. the years? Well, people used to be a lot more blatant. I know I had sent in a copy of a play that I'd written. It was based on a radio drama I'd written called Say Ginger Ale about a young woman who's coming to terms with like when her her grandmother gets sick in Jamaica and she has to go back. And that's when she realizes she'd held a lot of shame about being from Jamaica because to her that was living in poverty. Yeah. And it was only when she went back, she saw there's actually a lot of wealth here. Yeah. That her worldview had changed because it was all about having so many things and electricity and all these things when people live these really beautiful, simple lives in Jamaica. And so it was a half hour radio play and then I adapted it into a longer play and I submitted it to a festival and... The soldier man that I knew was one of the jury members and he wrote the rejection letter saying, you know, it was really great, but there's no way we could cast it. Hmm. And I accepted that. And there is absolutely no way anyone could get away with it now. They probably didn't even try. They probably didn't think that there were four black actors they could find in whatever region that was. But to tell someone You create characters that are the wrong ethnicity or the wrong color, even though your script was good. Yeah. That was much more blatant. And I would say that that was like 2002. Wow. So right now. Totally. Yeah. Like there and there are things that have happened more recently where it's just obvious or it's just a given that we're just going to program your play in February. Why? (laughs) So when you see theaters who are like more than one play in one season is written by a black Mm. playwright, it's like, well, hello. (laughs) Because it would just be, oh, we'll save that one till next February. (laughs) How then have you found the conversation around colonialism? How has that changed over the past couple of years or has it? I think it's being talked about a lot more as something in the present. And why do we need to hang on to these 
old ways. I heard a lot of people thinking and saying that when Elizabeth died, then maybe that would be the perfect timing. Yeah. Because so much happened during her reign. Yeah. Like her uncle had to step down when he married Wallace Simpson. And meanwhile, like Charles is divorced. Do you know, like so much has changed. We're from a different world now. Is it time to say goodbye to that? Or is it time for them to not draw a salary anymore? Or I think those conversations are pretty big. And I know that one huge criticism about Elizabeth was that she never apologized for slavery. And again, I'm saying there's no one person, there's no one member of the royal family that can be blamed for this system that has been put in Mm -hmm. place. But that acknowledgement would have meant so much to people. And now that we see Barbados Mm -hmm. has stepped away from the Commonwealth and is its own independent country now, Jamaica and all the others, like, we're lining up. We're lining up. And Mm -hmm. particularly Jamaica, because Bob Marley wrote so much about that. Uh, His, the line from Redemption Song, that emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. You know, it's... It's time. It's coming. That was playwright Marcia Johnson talking about her hit play, Serving Elizabeth. You can hear the play anytime right here on our podcast. And that is it for us for this season of Play Me. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. We can't wait to return next year with a whole new series of plays. In the meantime, we have dozens of shows available here for you to listen to. And you can always catch us on CBC Radio 1 every Sunday night at 9 p.m. and Wednesdays at 11. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can connect with us by emailing playme at cbc.ca. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Play Me through Google or Apple Podcasts. By subscribing, you can listen to all our past shows and you won't miss a single one of our new episodes. And while you're there, we would love it if you would consider rating and reviewing us. It helps spread the word about our podcast, bringing theatre to a whole new audience. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Our associate producer is Mary Chris Rivera. A special thanks to our CBC team. Anna Ashate is our digital producer and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani and the executive director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.